0: Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of intimate partner violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Lee Fitzgerald almost didn't recognize the woman sitting in front of her. 39-year-old Hella Crafts had always been perfect. She was beautiful, confident and in control. She never seemed to have trouble gracefully balancing her career while raising a family at the same time. Lee thought she had the ideal life. But the Hella who showed up to her house that night was a wreck. Dark circles formed beneath her clear blue eyes. Without her usual cheerful smile, her thin face looked gaunt. She was clearly exhausted. And then... Hella dropped a bomb on her friend. Her marriage was over. She had already been to see an attorney. Her husband was having an affair. He had a temper and had been violent in the past. There was an armory of loaded weapons locked away in their basement. It took Leah a moment to fully process the information. Everything she thought she knew about the crafts was wrong. Then. Hella looked her in the eye with deadly seriousness. If I disappear, she warned, it won't be an accident. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week... We'll discuss Richard and Hella Crafts. After a rocky start, their relationship only got worse over time. Next week, we'll talk about the nightmarish end to their marriage and a crime unlike anything small-town Connecticut had ever seen. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. From the outside... Richard Crafts' early life was the typical 1950s American dream. The oldest son of a well-to-do family, his father, John Crafts, owned and operated a profitable Park Avenue accounting firm. By the time Richard's younger sister came along, a major accounting company had bought the business. With the proceeds from the sale, the Crafts purchased land in Darien, Connecticut. Sometime around 1950, when Richard was 13, the family moved to the suburbs. The Crafts had a stately home custom-built on their property, with plenty of room for the family of four. As pretty as the picture was from the outside, life inside those walls wasn't everything it seemed. John Crafts was a man's man. A former college football player, he had been a pilot during World War II. Even sober, he was usually the strict parent but his temper was downright unbearable when fueled by alcohol. The spacious home felt a lot smaller when John was drinking, which was probably why young Richard spent as much time as he could away from the house. He was particularly drawn to the vast empty lot surrounding the family's property. There, he wandered the fields lost in his daydreams. At school, he was known as quiet and outdoorsy. Having few friends, Richard didn't stand out much to his classmates. He did manage to make an impression on his teachers, though it wasn't for any academic achievements. They knew him for being a bit of a troublemaker. In high school, Richard was suspended for bringing firecrackers to class. When new houses were eventually built on his beloved lots, he shot out the windows with his BB gun. The incidents were relatively minor. It was considered typical teen boy behavior, especially for the 50s. Richard graduated high school in 1955. Despite his missteps and average GPA, he was accepted to the University of Connecticut as an agriculture major. It should have been Richard's chance to thrive, finally out from under his father's thumb— But he was still the dreamy boy who wandered empty lots with his head in the clouds. He didn't do well without clear direction. After just one semester, he quit going to university. But unlike a lot of dropouts, Richard knew exactly what he was going to do next. Before he'd even told his parents about leaving school, he enlisted in the US Marines. He wanted to be a pilot just like his dad. Because Richard had never been successful academically, he might've seen the Marines as his only chance to prove his manhood. He might've been surprised when his dad was deeply disappointed by his decision. John had always hoped Richard would follow in his footsteps, but he was thinking in business terms, not the military. The highly regimented marine life suited Richard much better than school ever had, however. Especially in the 1950s and 60s, the service was a straightforward, highly masculine environment. Being tough mentally and physically got respect. Richard excelled. He was the first in his unit to reach private first class. More importantly, he was accepted to the US Naval Air Training Station in Florida. In 1958, two short years after joining, Richard earned his wings as a second lieutenant. His first assignment was as a helicopter pilot in North Carolina. A big man in a small town, Richard was no longer a shy, skinny boy. He was a fine-looking guy with dark hair and dreamy eyes to match. He always seemed to have a woman or two sniffing around for his attention. And Richard was happy to give it. Though he was suddenly popular with the ladies, he wasn't too picky about his dates. He wasn't looking for anything serious, so it didn't really matter to him whether she was smart, funny, or even good-looking. A body was a body. Given the benefit of the doubt, Richard could be portrayed as an ugly duckling, happily accepting any attention thrown his way, but the facts leave no room for debate. Everyone who knew him agreed. Richard Crafts wasn't the pursuer in any of his sexual exploits. Before we get into his psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. The truth was, when it came to dating and sex, Richard was inconsiderate in every possible way. A lack of empathy not only made it easier for him to sleep around guilt-free, it also may have pointed towards some seriously negative personality issues. According to an article published in the European Journal of Personality in 2009, men who lack empathy tend to engage in more casual sex. They also show higher levels of infidelity should they somehow find themselves in committed relationships. Richard only entered into relationships as long as he got what he wanted. When they stopped being convenient, he ended them. It took him a year in North Carolina to exhaust his small town's pool of available women. But that wasn't too much of an issue because he was soon reassigned. After another year at sea on aircraft carriers, he volunteered for an assignment that would put him back on dry land. Officially, Richard was working for Air America, a private charter company operating out of Taipei and Northern Thailand. In reality, he was flying for the CIA as a part of their ongoing secret war in Laos. In the years leading up to the Vietnam War, the U.S. propped up the Laotian government and its fight against communist insurgents from North Vietnam. By the early 1960s, that plan had been failing. So the CIA started funding and training fighters of their own from the local Hmong tribe. Richard and his fellow pilots essentially provided the Laotians with a secret air force. In 1961, many countries, including the US, signed an agreement in Geneva that put a technical stop to the fighting in the region. But by the following year, the agreement was basically up in flames. Richard accepted a discharge from the Marines and joined Air America full-time. Technically, he was violating international law under the guise of working for a private company. It might have been a secret, but it was still war. The missions ranged from transporting personnel and supplies to engaging in live combat. Even under such stressful conditions, Richard generally got along with his fellow pilots, Many thought of him as a nice guy, confident and easygoing. But Richard had inherited his father's simmering temper, and he couldn't keep it in check forever. One night, he and another pilot, who happened to be dating his sister at the time, got into a heated argument. Charged words quickly turned to blows. The whole thing ended with Richard charging the man with a two-by-four, He narrowly missed the soldier's head, putting a large hole in the wall behind him instead. Even after that, Richard's friends didn't think of him as a violent man. War is a tense and chaotic environment. Though the pilots were given some time for rest, the constant danger was overwhelming. On the job, Richard and his buddies were always looking for ways to blow off steam. One of their favorite pastimes, Richard recalled in later years, was capturing and tormenting monkeys from the surrounding jungles. The terrified creatures were given tiny parachutes and unceremoniously tossed from planes mid-flight. When he couldn't get his kicks from murdering monkeys, Richard played demented games with prisoners of war. Sometimes he and his fellow airmen deliberately left the cargo hatch open when transporting prisoners to terrify them. He cackled as he watched his captives tumble around like laundry in a dryer, inches away from plummeting to their deaths. But even these disturbing games weren't enough to get him through. In 1966, 28-year-old Richard left Air America and returned to the US. His transition back to civilian life wasn't exactly smooth. He bounced around between jobs for a few years, but in January of 1968, things started to look up when he took a job flying for Eastern Airlines. With his career sorted out, Richard turned his attention back to his love life, though he was just as noncommittal as ever. He was still reserved, but that just made him seem mysterious. His hair was just short enough to be within regulation length, giving him a hint of a bad boy edge. All in all, he was happy to be back playing the field. Though he dated a lot, Richard was certainly not a romantic. His attitude about sex was casual, even by the standards of the 60s. Being an airline pilot meant nights in different cities, Going out to pick up women was just something to pass the time, like reading a book or going to see a movie. And absolutely none of that changed when he connected with 22 year old Hella Nielsen. In 1969, the two met in Miami for training Richard with Eastern Airlines and Hella as a new flight attendant for Pan Am. Though she was new to the company, Hella had already been working as a flight attendant for two years. She was born in Copenhagen, Denmark, and grew up in a small town nearby. After high school, she worked in England and France, becoming fluent in both languages. Out of 200 applications, Hella was one of only eight accepted by Pan Am and sent to Miami. She was a shining star both in class and outside. A generally upbeat and positive person, she made friends easily. Still, she didn't open up easily. Even her closest friends didn't know much about things like her love life. Though she didn't talk about it, Hella dated plenty. She was every bit the elegant Scandinavian beauty with high cheekbones and flowing blonde locks. She was used to getting attention from men. Which was why her fellow trainees were surprised when Hella fell head over heels for Richard Kraft. She could have taken her pick of any of the clean-cut, handsome pilots, but instead, Hella was fascinated by scruffy, quiet Richard. Even more shocking was the fact that Richard didn't seem interested in her at all. The thing that makes guys like Richard attractive. Is that they're tough and nearly impossible to impress. For a woman like Hella, Richard was an irresistible challenge. Coming up, Hella fights for her man and comes to wish she hadn't.
1: Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast. Sinister Societies.
2: You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red-Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most
1: nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom, and then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical.
2: Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have
1: known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial, or collegiate kind, attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows. Others operate in
2: plain sight. All are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.
0: Now, back to the story. In 1969, 31 year old pilot Richard Crafts came to Miami for training with Eastern Airlines. While there, he met 22 year old Hella Nielsen, a Dutch native and new stewardess with Pan Am. The attraction was instant and intense. For Hella, anyway. Richard was difficult to nail down. He seemed to like her, but not any more or less than his other girlfriends. After Miami, Hella and her fellow attendants moved to New York City, Richard's home base. They continued seeing each other, though Hella knew she was far from his only flame. In fact, Richard was reportedly engaged at the time, though we don't know to whom. He referred to Hella as, quote, extracurricular activity and he didn't try very hard to hide his infidelity. When Hella told him she was uncomfortable in Manhattan, he helped her and some friends find a new apartment in Queens. That was the same borough where he lived with his fiance. Apparently their apartments were so close that at one point Richard ended up on an uncomfortable elevator ride with both women. It's unclear how or when the engagement ended, but it couldn't have lasted long. Despite all of the bright red flags, Hella was still fascinated by Richard. She was determined to tame him. She routinely waited by Eastern Airline Terminals just to catch a glimpse of Richard as he disembarked his flights and to give him a glimpse of her. But more often than not, he still left the airport with a different woman on his arm. His indifference made him attractive to Hella. Growing up, she didn't have a sterling example of a healthy relationship. Her father had been a cheater, too. Though her mom left the marriage, the two remained in an off and on relationship for most of Hella's childhood. All the effort with Richard wasn't entirely in vain, though. Hella may have been one of a few, but she did secure a regular spot in his rotation. After a year, they were about as serious as Richard would let himself get with a woman. He even went as far as to meet her parents. In 1973, Hella took her folks on a trip to Bangkok. When they arrived, Richard surprised her by showing up and upgrading their accommodations. He took all three out to dinner executing the part of charming boyfriend to perfection. In times like those, Hella saw a different side to Richard than most people. Typically reserved, Richard wasn't prone to displays of emotion, but on the nights he stayed with her, he would suddenly be overcome by emotion and break down in tears. There were many nights when Hella woke to Richard screaming in his sleep, Hella was sure he was emotionally devastated by his war experiences, but he likely never gave her a straight answer. Hella likely felt special as someone Richard felt safe expressing his honest feelings around. That may have been why she acted like his dalliances didn't matter to her. She knew the real Richard Crafts. Or that's what he let her think anyway. When it came to Richard, it was never easy to tell what was real and what was a performance. Despite the supposed intimacy between the two, he ran as hot and cold with Hella as he did with every other woman. It was all part of Richard's strategy for keeping Hella on the hook. According to an article by psychologist Dr. Jill Weber, emotionally unavailable men often employ a tactic called intermittent reinforcement. Basically, it's a powerful conditioning technique. The majority of the time, Hella's attempts to get closer to Richard were ignored, if not openly rebuffed. But every once in a while, he rewarded her with a display of emotion or special attention. These glimpses of emotion made Hella hope she could someday achieve the close, stable relationship she wanted from Richard. And as yet another carrot to keep her going, Richard made her a promise. He claimed that if Hella got pregnant, he'd marry her. It's not likely that he really meant it, though. The couple had been having unprotected sex for at least five years without so much as a scare at that point. Neither of them really believed it was possible, but it was. Sometime around 1974, Hella got pregnant for the first time. She was excited about the happy miracle. She wanted to be a mother and couldn't wait for her and Richard to become a real family. But when she told him the wonderful news, her fantasy instantly evaporated. When faced with upholding his promise, Richard exploded. He accused Hella of planning to trap him into marriage all along by getting pregnant, but he'd show her he wasn't so easily duped. It's not clear if this was the first time Richard beat Hella, but it wouldn't be the last. When he was done taking out his anger on her, he demanded she abort the pregnancy. She did. Luckily, this was around the time of Roe v. Wade, the US Supreme Court decision that protected a woman's right to choose. Just a few years earlier, Richard would have been demanding she risk her life for a potentially unsafe and illegal procedure. Yet even after going through all of that, the pair continued playing it fast and loose with birth control. In 1975, Hella got pregnant again. This time, Richard disappeared for a few weeks after she told him the news. Assuming he still wasn't going to live up to his promise, Hella scheduled another abortion. Before she went through with it, however, Richard miraculously returned. He would decided to keep his promise after all and told her to keep the baby. At almost 40 years old, it was high time for him to settle down and start a family as far as society was concerned. If he checked that box on the outside, he'd have a respectable facade to hide behind while continuing his philandering ways. Though he never had trouble finding women to sleep with, few would stay with him long-term. But Hella was more than willing. She was already desperate and pregnant with his child. In possibly the world's least romantic proposal, Richard finally told Hella he'd marry her this time. But he warned her he had impossibly high expectations. If he was going to get married, everything had to be perfect. The whole point of having a family was to make him look good. Hella would be solely responsible for a well kept home and obedient children. Not to mention maintaining her own looks and reputation none of it was negotiable it was richard's way or nothing there would be no highway divorce was simply not an option even with all the qualifiers hella was over the moon she made the wedding happen just days later before richard could change his mind on november 29 1975 39-year-old Richard Crafts married 28-year-old Hella Nielsen at a friend's house in New Hampshire. Because of the shotgun nature of things, Hella's parents couldn't make it to the ceremony. On his side of the aisle, Richard had his mother and sister Karen. She, in particular, loved Hella and couldn't wait to welcome her into the family. A few months later, in 1976, the Crafts bought a home in Richard's home state of Connecticut. Newtown was a two-hour drive from New York City, but it might as well have been another planet. Though she'd been afraid of the city when she first moved there, Ella had eventually grown used to, if not fond of, the bustle and crowds. Newtown was oppressively quiet by comparison. Like most small towns, there wasn't much of a social scene to speak of. The closest thing would have been the hundreds of local community organizations, but Hella had little time for volunteering. Having been raised by a working mother, she kept her job as a flight attendant following the wedding. The move added a two-hour commute to and from her flight assignments. When she was home, she was devoted to her newborn son, Andrew. Getting married, moving, and becoming a mother in less than a year was a lot of change but Hella seemed to adjust all right considering. By comparison, Richard's life changed very little. He kept his apartment in New York supposedly just as a place to sleep for work. Of course, it was also a convenient bachelor pad. He came and went as he saw fit, giving Hella little or no information about his comings and goings. Hella was smart enough to know marriage wouldn't change their relationship right away, but her friends, especially the ones she made in her new home, couldn't understand why she put up with the way Richard treated her. After the marriage, his abuse intensified. Not only was he neglectful and philandering, he was regularly violent. In 1977, the young family visited New Hampshire to stay with the friends who'd hosted their wedding just two years earlier. At dinner one night, Richard suddenly leaned over and popped a zit on Hella's nose, right at the table in front of everyone. Humiliated and bleeding, Hella kicked his leg with her bare foot. In response, Richard stood and slugged her in the face, sending her spinning to the floor the violence of the incident was disturbing but what really freaked the smiths out was the utter lack of emotion on richard's face the families didn't see much of each other after that things only got worse from there over the course of the next two years hella suffered two miscarriages those who had seen her bruises wandered about their cause but she always blamed them on frequent flying so, when she became pregnant for a third time, she grounded herself for the term. In 1979, Hella gave birth to another boy named Thomas. Just two years after that, she had a daughter, Christina. Though he'd been present for the births of both of his sons, by that time Richard was spending less and less time at home. He was away and unreachable when Hella went into labor with Christina. She drove herself to the hospital and gave birth alone. Holding her newborn, Hella comforted herself with the memory of her first child. Not only was Richard there in the room, he'd even cried. Like many victims of intimate partner violence, Hella likely felt trapped in her marriage. According to clinical psychologist Craig Malkin, people wind up blaming themselves for the abusive behavior of their partners. They convinced themselves if they approach the person differently, maybe they won't be abused. Richard didn't just physically abuse Hella; He emotionally manipulated her too. After so many years of this behavior, she may have been unable to see any way out. Malkin also stated, eventually there's sort of this wearing down for people on the receiving end of the abuse. Where they continue to tolerate more and over time. Hella wanted to keep going on the promise of the man, husband, and father she thought Richard could be, no matter the cost. Coming up, Hella gets a glimpse of the marriage she so desperately wants. Now, back to the story. At the start of the 1980s, 43-year-old Richard and 33-year-old Hella Crafts had seemingly achieved the American dream. They were young, married professionals with three kids and a house in the Connecticut suburbs. All that was missing was a dog and a white picket fence. But all of that was a facade. Their marriage was more about giving Richard a respectable image than creating a loving family. Seeing Richard together with his children was rare, and it only became less frequent as the years passed. The crafts let people think the distance was an unhappy byproduct of their careers in the airline industry, but really, Richard took any and every opportunity to stay far away. In 1982, he joined the Newtown PD as an unpaid part time officer. The real policeman called him a hobby cop, but that didn't diminish the appeal for Richard. In addition to being another distraction from his domestic misery, he really enjoyed being a cop, probably too much. Richard wasn't allowed to make official arrests, but he was issued a license to carry a gun. The group was mostly used as security at public events or backup on patrols. Richard volunteered for all of it. Being associated with the police department not only boosted his ego, it also gave him a seemingly valid reason to collect firearms. Over the years, he gathered a veritable arsenal and stored them in the family's basement. On one Sunday, Richard was stationed at a church to help direct traffic. There was some kind of disagreement between him and a motorist things got so heated between them, Richard actually reached for his weapon. Another officer at the scene told him off for not being able to control his temper. That type of trigger-happy behavior was common in rookie cops, Wyatt Earp syndrome, he called it. Usually guys grew out of it the longer they were on the force, but something about Richard said that wouldn't be the case. Now that Hella was juggling three young kids with her full-time flying schedule, she told Richard it was time to hire some help. His immediate answer was no. He couldn't stand the idea of strangers in his house. He even hated it when Hella called handymen to take care of the home repairs he neglected. But eventually he gave in and let Hella hire a regular babysitter as long as the expense came out of her pocket, like the rest of the housekeeping costs. Even though he made three times her salary, Richard refused to pay anything other than the mortgage. Because they maintained separate accounts, Helen never really knew how much money Richard had at any given time. However, she did know he spent thousands on top of the line tools and equipment Including twenty thousand dollars on a construction-grade backhoe, he did absolutely nothing with any of it. Meanwhile, Alice struggled to make ends meet for herself and the kids. She bought everything she could secondhand, constantly scrimping and saving to pay the bills. In 1984, the finances became even more of a concern when Richard was diagnosed with colon cancer. His condition required surgery to remove a foot and a half of his intestine, along with several lymph nodes and part of his liver. After all of that, he still had months of chemotherapy ahead of him. Because he couldn't fly during his recovery and treatment, Richard's pilot's license lapsed. He was officially out of work. Ella worried about what would happen to her and the kids if he didn't survive. Pan Am had been struggling financially for years, but things in the mid 80s were looking particularly bad. There were whispers of layoffs. It was too much uncertainty, so Hella took things into her own hands. Around this time, she took several side jobs to make some extra money. She joined the multi-level marketing company Shackley and peddled their nutrition supplements. She and her best friend also started a lace curtain business they ran from their homes. On top of all the extra hours and her usual responsibilities, Hella also made time to play nurse to her ailing husband. The year he spent convalescing was the longest stretch he'd ever spent with his family. She reveled in the fact that he finally needed her. She felt closer to her husband than ever before. Maybe Richard's cancer had been an answer to her prayers. But not for long, because Richard recovered quickly. By December of 1985, he'd turned 48, gotten his pilot's license reinstated, and went back to work for Eastern Airlines. Things went almost entirely back to normal though he still had to be in town more for frequent checkups. The near-death experience hadn't changed him at all. In February of 1986, Richard joined the Southbury PD as an auxiliary constable for $7 an hour. Even more gung-ho than before, Richard bought his own Crown Victoria, the car driven by most police departments across the U.S., he even outfitted the vehicle with two CB radios, aftermarket antennas on the front and back, red lights and an actual siren. That was just one way Richard came across as overeager. He also tended to escalate every situation he was called to. It was like he didn't really pay attention to all the extra training sessions and special courses. He paid his own way to attend. Even if some objected to his attitude, it's likely that Richard fit in better than the other officers wanted to admit. In her 2015 article about masculinity and policing, law professor Lee Goodmark highlights how machismo is central to police culture. This often causes officers to suppress their emotions, seek strict control over situations, and react violently to stress it's easy to see why Richard was drawn to the field like a moth to a flame. Plus, with the addition of police work, Richard was back to being away from home all the time. Only now, Hella was working extra gigs and had even less freedom for herself. After months of arguing, she managed to wear Richard down again, and in June, they hired Marie Thomas to be their live-in nanny. But even with the extra help, Hella Crafts was far from her normal, cheery self. Her friends took notice of how exhausted she was all the time. It was a stark contrast from the vivacious and poised mask she'd worn for years. She actually seemed to be reaching the end of her rope in her marriage. Hella started agonizing to her closest friends over whether or not to get a divorce. Some friends had been asking her for years why she stayed. Whenever they did, Hella had always leapt to Richard's defense. It seemed like all the excuses were starting to sound thin, even to her. In August, Hella Crafts was finally at her breaking point. It started with the phone bill. For years, she'd been in charge of the household expenses. One night, She was reviewing the bill for charges belonging to the nanny when Richard suddenly ripped the pages from her hand. He announced that he'd be taking care of the budget from then on. The bill stopped arriving at the house. Helen knew exactly what the sudden turn meant. Richard was hiding a woman. It shouldn't have been a surprise, but after a year of finally feeling close to her husband, She had real hope that things had changed between them. She wasn't content to let it slide, so she called the telephone company to find out where the bills were going. It turned out they were being sent to a PO box in a different part of town. Somehow, she convinced the postal workers to give her access. It was stuffed full, but after perusing some pages, Helen noticed a large amount of calls to a New Jersey number. Hands shaking, Hella called for herself. After a few rings, she got an answering machine telling her to leave a message for Nancy. Cold reality sunk in. No matter how badly she wanted him to, Richard was never going to change. Hella then contacted Diane Anderson, a high-powered local divorce lawyer at the beginning of September 1986. It didn't take long for Diane to tell her she had a pretty strong case for adultery, which would be helpful if things devolved into a custody battle. Unfortunately, cases couldn't be built on hunches and suspicions. If they had hard evidence like photos, Diane could keep Hella and the children out of court. Diane put her in touch with a private investigator named Keith Mayo. The three met in Diane's conference room a few days later. Hella brought the phone records with her, as well as some copies of receipts that put Richard in New Jersey, a lot. His tendency to keep detailed records was coming back to bite him. Hella didn't know Richard's flight schedule beyond the vague check marks he left on the wall calendar. Looking at them now, she realized the total went way over the 84-hour limit. Obviously, he padded his comings and goings to hide what he was really up to. Hella told Mayo she had a contact at Richard's airline who could tell her his real schedule. She'd get back to him with the next date on his calendar that seemed to be fake. Then she paid his and Diane's retainer fees from her private account. Hella Crafts was finally keeping some secrets of her own. The next time Hella saw the PI was October 2nd, 1986. He'd done two successful stakeouts of Nancy's home and had photos she needed to see. They met in the parking lot of a diner that evening, with rain coming down in buckets like the beginning of a film noir. Hella wouldn't have been out of place in that kind of picture either. She looked every bit the blonde heroine seeking counsel from a PI about what to do with her no good husband. Her hands trembled as Mayo handed her the envelope. When Hella saw what was inside, her worst fears were confirmed. Soon afterward, she broke down and turned to her friend Rita for comfort. Hella wasn't necessarily upset by seeing Richard being affectionate with another woman. She’d seen him go around with plenty over the years. The thing that hurt the most about this one was that Nancy looked so much like Hella. Their hair was the same shade of blonde, worn in practically matching styles. It made her feel deficient as a wife and a woman. As Hella continued her sorrowful tale, she grew more upset before suddenly exclaiming, quote: if Richard knew about the photos, he'd kill me. Rita did a double take, not sure if she was being serious. Hella clarified that she didn't mean it as a figure of speech, but she wouldn't say anything more about that, no matter how much Rita begged her to. With that terrifying declaration, Hella went home. As it turned out, she wasn't the only one looking for advice. Somehow Richard got wind of her plans. It's not clear if Hella told him or if he heard whispers through the rumor mill, but around October, he also had divorce on the brain. While visiting his brother-in-law, David Rogers, Richard casually asked how the divorce with his first wife had gone. David knew better than to ask why Richard was suddenly curious. He did have a horror story though. Between division of property, alimony, and child support, David had been put through the ringer financially. He warned Richard that things probably wouldn't turn out so well for him either. The only reason Hella hadn't drawn up the official papers yet was because Richard was waiting for the results of his latest post-cancer checkup. If there was a chance he was sick again, she didn't want to add to his suffering. Coincidentally, shortly after his chat with David, Richard told Hella he'd gotten his results. They were bad. He told her he was dying. Hella was devastated. But luckily, one of her close friends was able to convince her to contact Richard's doctor herself. She was reassured that her husband was healthy as a horse. In fact, the doctor called Richard one of his star patients. All of her sadness, hardened into icy rage. Whatever doubts Hella still had left evaporated in that moment. On October 14th, she called Diane Anderson and told her to get the divorce papers ready. As far as Hella Crafts was concerned, her marriage was over. She told Richard as much when she revealed that she'd caught him in his cancer lie. He could stay in the house until the divorce was final if he agreed to see less of his girlfriend in the meanwhile. For his part, Richard feigned humble resignation. In fact, he transformed into the husband Hella had always dreamed of. He was attentive to her and the kids and actually did some fixing up around the house, but it was far too little, way too late. Richard was furious that his latest performance wasn't working. That Hella could think he'd let her leave him and take his children. He'd warned her before they got married if Hella wanted out, there was only one way. It said so in the vows. There was no way she would get out alive. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with part two of the near-perfect murder that rocked a tiny Connecticut town to its core. For more information on Richard and Hella Crafts, amongst the many resources we used, we found The Woodchipper Murder by author Herzog extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Scott Stronic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs.
1: you aren't supposed to know about them, unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies.
2: Whether it's Doomsday Predictions, Deadly Greed, or World Domination... Each week, we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may
1: not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.